My name is Abby Kaluza. And my name is Marta Ditzler. And we will be your hosts for this episode of Extending the Links Under Told Podcast. This episode, we will discuss the history of the Native American boarding schools at CSBSJU. This is the third episode of our four-episode long podcast series promoting decolonization here at CSBSJU and in the broader community. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that the land we gather on today is the original homeland of the Dakota and the Anishinaabe peoples. We honor and respect the indigenous peoples who were forcibly removed from and who are still connected to this territory. There are over 20 native and indigenous students at our schools from different nations. St. Ben's Monastery and St. John's Abbey used to operate boarding schools for native children. Now, students, faculty, and staff are working to repair relationships with our Native Nation neighbors. There are well over 35,000 Indigenous people living in the Twin Cities metro area, including a diversity of nations. Centuries of genocide and forced assimilation have created a range of challenges for Indigenous peoples. Throughout, Indigenous peoples have carried forward ancestral traditions and created contemporary adaptations. Today we will be focusing more specifically on the history of Native American boarding schools at CSB-SJU. We open this podcast as a space to discuss ways in which we can support Indigenous peoples in our area. We, ETL, are a storytelling organization, but we ourselves are not the storytellers. We seek to be a platform for storytelling that amplifies the calls of community members. Through this podcast, we aim to promote and uplift the voices of faculty, staff, students, communities, and organizations who are actively working for healing and decolonization. We interviewed Father Doug Mullen, who spoke to us regarding his role at the Red Lake Reservation as an educator and a priest with the St. John's Monastery. My name is Father Doug Mullen. Um, I'm a monk of St. John's Abbey. I have been for about 42 years or so, 43 years. I currently work as a chaplain at the uh, VA uh, health systems in St. Cloud. Uh, Prior to that, I spent, uh, I think, 11 years. I was vice president for student development here at St. John's. Prior to that, I was in the education department, teaching and department chair for about 10 years. Prior to that, I worked in the prep school for about seven years. I was the Dean of Students and Director of Residential Life and International Students. And prior to that, I worked on the Red Lake Indian Reservation for about seven years. And I taught sixth grade uh, and I was principal of the school my last three years there. And um, prior to that, I was a had just entered the monastery right after graduation from high for our excuse me two years after graduating from St. John's. We also had the opportunity to speak with Travis Zimmerman regarding his past experience as a native student at St. John's University and the work he is doing today. Uh, Travis Zimmerman and uh, I am a descendant of the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. My dad's an enrolled member and uh, live in Aiken, Minnesota currently, and I am the site manager of the Malax Indian Museum and Trading Post, and a graduate of St. John's University, got a history degree, graduated in 1994. 
we spoke with Sister Phillips about her role as an educator at St. Mary's Mission on the Red Lake Reservation. Okay, I'm Sister Phillips Zimmer, and I am a member of St. Benedict's Monastery, actually for 68 years. Um, and uh, I, I returned back here to the monastery from elementary education um, in 17 years ago. And since then, uh, my ministry here at the monastery is in what we call physical plant, which is the uh, upkeep, maintenance and upkeep of uh, the monastery. That sounds kind of awesome. But... We spoke with Sister Phyllis Berg regarding her experience with Native American culture and teaching Native American history here at CSB SJU. I joined the faculty of St. Ben's and St. John's here in 1970, and I had my BA in history and elementary education. I then attended the University of Minnesota and earned a PhD in US history. When it came time to choose a topic for my dissertation, my advisor asked me what I was thinking about, and I had to admit I didn't have anything in mind. And he said, well, what about you uh, as a member of a community that taught on Indian reservations? He said, I don't know of any study that has been done by any of you Benedictines. And I thought, why not? You know, it sounded interesting to me. I have to tell you, I knew absolutely nothing about our Indian missions at the time. And I thought, well, this will be a good learning experience. And uh, that's what I did. I spent a full year and a half studying American Indian culture in general and white earth in, uh, reservation in particular. <laughs> this wonderful culture was out there and I had never read about it, studied about it, heard about it in all my years of education. So I had to wait until I was in my early 30s and starting my PhD. Know that white earth and red lake were two major fields of uh, ministry for our community. I mean, it's strange that I was so unaware. Boarding schools were really detrimental to um, Indian family life and to uh, reservation and communities. And so these students were being taken away far from home, right? And so it's not like they were going to school and then coming back to the home in the evening. They would be gone pretty much the whole school year. Um, and then if the parents didn't have the resources to pay for them to come home or transportation or anything like that to go get them, sometimes a lot of the kids would just stay year round at some of these schools. And at these schools, there's been more and more, you know, uh, the history documented of um, abuse. Um, definitely disease was a, a big thing that broke out. Uh, they didn't have, you know, uh, uh, immunity to uh, some of the different uh, diseases that they were faced with at the boarding schools, you know, so places like Carlisle, you know, have huge cemeteries um, dedicated to Indian students uh, that died there. And the more you look into it, some of the very early boarding schools like Carlisle, some of the students there were actually the children of different chiefs of different bands that you know, especially across the plains had just recently been kind of put onto reservations and, you know, kind of subdued, I suppose, in a manner, you know, that it was almost like they were not really keeping their kids hostages, but, you know, I mean, like, are you going to agree with the terms of the reservation, even if you're not getting the annuities that you were promised for the land or, 
the com- you know the the payments aren't you know what uh, you were expected or they're going to uh, crooked uh, traders and Indian agents. I mean, you know, the whole system was was um, you got to look at you know kind of the history and the context of of when these schools started and how they started and why they started, you know, and the motto was kill the Indian, save the man. And to answer the question how the sisters became involved, um, I want to show you something from the book, um, which was written by an Indian chief in 1884, when he wrote to the abbot at St. John's requesting a pastor, a full-time priest. And this is actually his handwriting. If they had, oh, here, um, you're glad to hear what the commission Indian Fairs told you last winter. If you take the Red Lake Mission, I will give you the school run for me. And that's what we heard. So actually at that time, it was um, a boarding school, public boarding school, which they still had there. But with the coming of a pastor, then they were able to open the school um, at time at that time at the mission. So then we had two sisters that had arrived in White Earth, and then they came by lumber wagon over to uh, St. Mary's Mission uh, and started out. Uh, they came in 1888, and there were 30, 25 students, no books, blackboards, or slates, and the school flourished. And in 1889, it became a boarding school. And at that time, it was a public um, government boarding school. So as you have heard, uh, the children could not speak their native uh, language. Um, And there's a quotation in there from one of the priests at that time was saying, there was little participation and it slowed down their learning. Well, obviously if you, don't understand the language, mm-hmm. you're going to learn too well. Yeah. Uh, and so it actually was under government control for six years because in uh, 1889, the government then ceased to fund religious schools and uh, they then became just a, a church boarding school. CSB and SJU, the primary connection. I think has really been from the monasteries, uh, the schools themselves. So, but um, so the connection I would say was really primarily, like I say, outreach from the monasteries, both St. John's and St. Ben's. Uh, And they were within Minnesota, at least, they were usually collaborative efforts between the sisters and the monks. Uh, And so, for example, um, at Red Lake, that started, well, that was all started before the Benedictines had arrived, this type of thing. Uh, but it actually started at White Earth that there was a, a diocesan priest, if you will, who, who was there, a foreign missionary. And he wasn't working out real well. There were challenges and whatnot. Um, uh, he supported the Indian people, but was uh, got into political battles with um, government and this type of thing. And uh, so the abbot was asked to send monks and he sent a couple of monks and sisters from St. Ben's went up also. And the people really liked the Benedictines because they spent the time to learn the language right away. 
the Ojibwe language. And so this was uh, kind of a great thing why they liked them. And then uh, one of the priests from White Earth went to visit Red Lake where this other priest had gone before and had kind of been chased out um, by the people. And um, they were so impressed that he could speak their language that they then sent a letter to the abbot of St. John's asking, and it was signed by like 112 of the Red Lake people, asking to send him, that particular priest, and sisters to start a school there. It took 10 years before that happened, and it was not that priest, it was two, uh, two other priests that ended up going there. So that was the beginning of the Benedictine service at Red Lake. Well, one of the big uh, signatures of uh, erasing culture is erasing language, uh, because language is the expression of the way of life. So the school board for the public school tended to be the leaders of the community, government leaders, and most of the government leaders would send their own kids to the Catholic school, which was an interesting dynamic on the whole thing. Red Lake people said, that's our job to teach language and culture. It's not yours. There was much to learn from both the joys and the sorrows of, of life up there. I think one of the things that, that I learned that was important is that for them holding the, the, their relationship with the land was really critical. And there was a, their identity came from their land, but they did not have a sense of ownership of land like uh, dominant society did, Western civilization, if you will. Uh, it was kind of, this is mother earth, and we, we relate to the earth rather than uh, conquer it and uh, own it and buy it and sell it and this type of thing. Um, so that was, that was kind of an important piece. Uh, Red Lake is very um, strong in identifying itself as a sovereign nation for the Red Lake people. They, uh, there was a deep pride in the community itself. Um, and there were also many challenges uh, like every community has. And so one of the roles that I saw us playing in part of the, the church and the school was to be kind of a, a, a neutral ground where people could come together. I think um, the giftedness of the people, um, it, it, they're such beautiful people. And uh, one of the things that you can see through them, even to this day, when you have so many outside challenges, especially for the young, is the sense of community and togetherness. I know one of the women who had gone to college here and uh, didn't have the opportunity for herself, she didn't get the or have the chance to finish, had said, the life of Benedictine is very much like of the Native people because we share. And Res Red Lake being a closed reservation. It was rooted in religion, certainly in our Catholic uh, faith and our teaching. Uh, I would say that the boarding school at White Earth pretty well ran like any of our Catholic schools anywhere in the parishes. You would not have found much different curriculum. Uh, the Baltimore Catechism, and of course the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, <laughs> right? But a lot of evangelizing, yes. The students, for example, started the day with mass. They weren't asked whether they wanted it. They were just told we would begin this way. So the morning began with a mass and then we would have breakfast with the students. 
And then after that, they would go to their assigned classrooms. So it was run very much like sisters ran ordinary parochial schools. And I, I think you would not have found much difference in the curriculum, really. But a heavy, heavy dose of, uh, perhaps more of a dose of, of catech catechism on the reservations than was needed in the regular Catholic schools, in uh, non-reservation schools, yes. But I, I would say it was a very heavy dose of, of uh, religion. So definitely it was to uh, give them a good solid education, the basics of education, but uh, the idea was to win them over mm -hmm. from what we called pagan thinking and pagan philosophy. And again, we knew little or nothing about their culture. And so we threw those terms around very freely, I'm afraid. I would say that um, while the students were at the school, at the boarding school, of course, they were held to these standards, right? Mm -hmm. Once they went home, what kind of control was there? I, I don't know. In the boarding school itself, yes, there was strong, I'd call it strong control. I did interview uh, about 12 of the graduates of the boarding school for my dissertation. I went to the reservation, although I found at least three of them in the Twin Cities had been living there. But I did go to the reservation and I, I did ask this. I asked, what is it from your education in those early years that you feel was valuable? or not valuable. And I'd say on the whole, they were positive about learning the reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now they mentioned having to go to mass, learning to pray the rosary, uh, you know, celebrating uh, Catholic feast days. They did mention those, but to say how profound an influence it had on their lives, I didn't, get into that, frankly, and I didn't feel I could push on that. I felt they'll share with me what they want. And I have to say that very little was said about that. Uh, when I, you know, got into my history degree, I started looking around and then I found out, you know, a little bit, there wasn't a lot, you know, there was seemed to be more about, especially St. Ben's work, but going out onto reservations and setting up, you know, missionary schools and, and uh, churches and different things. But I hadn't heard a lot about actually, you know, the origins of uh, St. John's or the kind of the university and working with Native students in a type of, it sounds like it's similar to what they did at Morris, uh, University of Minnesota Morris, um, had like an industrial school. So that's kind of what it sounded like St. John's had is from my understanding, I still don't know all that much about it. I'd like to, you know, as working with um, some of the current students and with Ted uh, and, uh, you know, they're they're really kind of trying to, to honor some of that stuff. So I'm interested to, to definitely learn more about what that history was. And so you had whole generations of reservations that no longer were parenting kids or grandparenting children. So you had this void so that when children no longer go into boarding schools and women started having children on the reservation, there wasn't that kind of generational knowledge that was passed down to not just about Ojibwe traditions, language, and culture, but just how to raise kids, how to 
be a parent, how to be a grandparent, how to be part of a healthy, functioning family unit again was really yeah. detrimental. And then kids coming home and, you know, not speaking the language anymore, not knowing the traditions. And, you know, there's already just a generation gap that's prevalent in all cultures. But then you compound that generational gap with now this cultural gap of not knowing those ways and those things. And there's just even more of a distance, you know, and this feeling of disconnection because you no longer practice the ways or speak the language and you can't communicate to your your parents or your grandparents the same way. Well, I think the important thing is uh, that Native peoples have their own stories to tell. I found a challenge that um, people who were successful in school tended to leave the reservation. And so that it was a counterproductive to the whole thing. It kind of created a brain drain. One of the community leaders, uh, the head of the Head Start program uh, for preschool kids, she had attended St. Ben's and St. Ben's was on a quarter system at that time. She dropped out one quarter before graduation because she felt if she had a college degree, she would not be accepted by the people because she would be placing herself higher than the rest that did not. So th there was a dynamic also of people wanting the best for their own kids, but at the same time, not wanting them to leave. These are, I think, the important kinds of things that, that come forward uh, rather than get looking for a simple way to say, oh, I know what Native culture is, or to, in a sense, romanticize it and you know, say everything would be fine if it were not for uh, white society coming along. There were problems before, there's problems now, but there's many truly, I mean, I was always amazed at the beauty and intelligence of the kids and their resilience in terms of dealing with so many problems that they would always, they would always show up and they would be there. And they always inspired me with greater hope. Well, one of the things about the boarding school there is that it was right on the reservation. And so they were not as far from their home and their, their families as the other boarding schools where they actually took the children and sent them somewhere else. However, in reading the, the book, it did say that there were children from the um, Twin Cities, from Duluth, um, some of these outlying areas that were actually at the boarding school in Red Lake. And there's one letter in here written, I don't know for sure now where that little boy was, but he, he had tears on his page because he was so lonesome for his mother. And uh, it, it just was heart-wrenching to know if this really illustrated the unfairness of uh, children being taken from their homes into the boarding schools. Whereas those at Red Lake, the boys oftentimes got to go home on weekends because they helped with the work. And I think when they, spring, when they had the uh, sugar bush, the maple syrup, they would sometimes leave to do that. Well, there's a lot of, there's communities of color right here in Minnesota that I felt like weren't really represented on campus sometimes. Then I took a, a couple classes, a couple courses on, on, on Native history and one of them was taught by um, a nun from St. Ben's, and one time in class, she kind of uh, 
mocked native spirituality and she said oh they and she put air quotations and said they heard spirits in the wind you know type of thing and I kind of confronted her after class she was actually my advisor too so it was kind of a tough thing to do <laughs> well I, I would say that what we've got to do is uh teach or at least expose students to this this rich culture that should be respected and honored in its own right. You know, sometimes you look back at your ministry and you think, oh, we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this work. But uh, we did not honor enough, I think, what was already there, the richness of that culture. So you've got to learn to ask the questions and you've got to be willing then to take their answers. One of the things that happened a few years ago, you know, we have our museum and um, a few years ago, we did a Native American exhibit and we really um, worked with the uh, people from White Earth and from Red Lake. And I know uh, two of the women from Red Lake who came here to help set up this uh, exhibit. And so they had an opportunity actually to see from our uh, museum artifacts, things that we have had from Red Lake. And I don't know how much of that that they felt would be entitled, that they'd be entitled to, but I think the kinds of things that we did have um, replicate maybe things they have like beadwork and um, I think the documents and things that are there probably are from what we would have from our end. Um, although I cannot speak to that totally uh, because I was not a part of it. I just know that uh, it was a good rapport between the uh, women of the sisters that were working in the uh, museum and the women that came to visit from Red Lake. But they actually had a, a, a very strong say in uh, setting up the exhibit. I think I've been involved in three or four meetings about you know, what kind of um, what kind of support would Native students need to be successful at institutions like St. John's or St. Ben's, you know? And it's hard to change a culture of a institution, you know? I mean, I've been working at the Historic Society for 15 years, and this is an institution that predates Minnesota statehood. They've been a Historic Society since, you know, before Minnesota was a state, so it's a very old institution. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to make institutional change, but, you know, I mean, just the willingness and now kind of what Ted has started and now it's my understanding, they, they just got approved uh, indigenous student uh, association group. And I'm involved also with the advisory, the native, what's oh, called NACC, I forget what the acronym is, but native advisory um, coordinating committee or coordinate something. So I've, I've gotten involved with that and, uh, you know, in trying to kind of give back. And, and I like the fact that, you know, that it's, there's still that opportunity there for engaging Indian students to attend the universities and, and that you're doing this work, you know, to even talk about the history of uh, Native boarding schools and reaching out to alumni and talking about their experience and stuff, I think is, is an important first step, you know, and one of the things we're doing at the Historic Society that I really like now that we've been working on for a little over a year is there's all these things now talking about like land acknowledgement, right? So, yeah. I mean, from 
um, you know, kind of the old school archaeology thought that it's okay to dig up Indian remains and, you know, put them in museums and institutions, you know, things like that, um, to, you know, openly displaying people's uh, human remains at the Capitol as kind of war trophies. But what I was told one time is think if we didn't ask those and we, if we weren't, you know, and so, you know, sometimes uh, you feel like you're banging your head on the wall and stuff. And and um, what I was told when I worked with that Indian advisory committee from a guy since passed away from White Earth that I really respected. But he said, but Travis, think think of what it'd be like if we weren't here. Think if we weren't in their ear and giving them advice and telling them, hey, some of these things and some of these practices you've done are wrong, you know, and you need to kind of be accountable to these and you need to reconcile with your own history and stuff. And so, you know, you just, it's that constant struggle, right? You just keep moving forward. Mm-hmm.